You're listening to OT Uncorked, the podcast for wine-loving OTs. I'm your host, Miranda Rennie. On OT Uncorked, we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy and a bottle of wine with experts in the field. In this episode, I interview Dr. Kate Agelsader, an occupational therapist who serves people who have experienced spinal cord injury. One of her passions as a therapist and researcher is supporting sexuality and intimacy in this population, which you'll hear more about in this episode. Our featured wine, Ménage et Trois, is a California red blend and was chosen mostly for its name, but also it's a great go-to table red. If you don't know what it means, Google it, but don't say I didn't warn you. Thanks for joining me, Kate. Thanks for having me. Kate, let's start with a brief introduction about who you are and what you do. Okay, well, I currently work at Towson University. Um, and have been teaching there for about five years, but my background really is in spinal cord injury and multi-trauma, and with a focus on sexuality. In this episode, Kate and I are uncorking a hot topic in patient care. We're talking about sex and sexuality. So we as therapists support people's performance in ADLs and really what's important and meaningful to them, and we know that sexual activity is an ADL, but somehow that's being missed in evaluations, treatments, discharge planning. It's really not being talked about as much. So tell me what got you into studying sexuality if it's not really uh, being talked about. <laughs> What's interesting because we were, um, myself and a few colleagues were asked to do a um, invited lecture for one of the AOTA conferences on the topic of sex and sexuality. And my role in preparing that Um, presentation was interviewing past patients and partners um, on their experience of sexuality post-discharge from rehab Um, and I found it fascinating um, that we thought we were covering it adequately but in reality we weren't Um, and so they had occupational dysfunction as a result of what we did not provide Um, and that really sparked my interest in figuring out how we could fix that. So I love what you brought up about clients' partners, because they're also really a part of the rehab experience, and if we're not including their partners in it, then we're really not addressing the full picture, and and our clients then going home aren't going to be as prepared to um, do what they want and need to do, you know, if we're not including their partners in it. So how has that affected the way you uh, care for clients, and also how you work um, in research, too? Um, well, to me, you just hit on the, one of the biggest points that, that matters to me is that we really focus a lot on the client and we do have um, guidelines that say we have to address this, especially um, with some of the specialty certifications, mm-hmm. um, but we don't often include the partner and my argument and kind of my passion is that if you have partnered sexual activity and you only address with, with one of those partners, when this client gets home, their partner has no idea what to really expect. Um, I know we used to hand out a book that had some explanation, but it was very clinical in nature, um, and it completely lacked that emotional piece. Um, So that has altered um, the way that I uh, look at clients. Um, I think it's really important to 
uh, incorporate the partner in that process. And then also in my research, I've done, my research actually started looking at what is the experience of partners, because if we're not getting to that, then they're not going to have um, the best sexual relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And you also brought up the emotional component. Um, and I think this just goes back to OT's role at looking at people holistically. And, you know, talking about your background and sort of this neuro rehab setting, we're not just looking at them as someone who has a neurodiagnosis as OTs. That's what we're really good at is seeing them in their context and the different roles that they have in their family and their relationships, um, their emotional well-being. And we need to look at all of that, especially with sexuality, because sexuality is far more than um, I think just like what people think it is, it's not just an act or a, um, just like engaging in a behavior, it's, it's a part of who you are and it's really an integral part, right? So Well, and you really hit the nail on the head because it's more than just the act of sex. Yeah. It's the intimacy that mm-hmm. goes along with that. Um, and it, just to, to recap some of the things I found in my research with the partners um, is you know, they may, and you'll have to excuse, excuse my crudeness, but they Go may <laughs> realize that their partner is unable to obtain an erection, yeah. but the emotional impact of, they know physically they can't do it, but there's still that sense of, I can't arouse my partner, mm-hmm. which is really very much that emotional piece. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's something that just can't be left out. And, you know, you kind of mentioned this with crudeness, but I think that almost, um, the, the fact that it's kind of a taboo topic prevents clients from wanting to bring it up to therapists, you know, right? And it can make therapists feel uncomfortable bringing it up to clients. You know, talking about erections is not something that we usually bring up with our, exactly. with our clients, but it, it, it can be. Um, and giving, you know, we talked about the Plicit model before, and it's, it's evident in a lot of your research. There's actually, uh, Kate wrote a really great article for OT Practice in 2016 that I'll post uh, the link for on otuncork.com. Uh, and in that, she presents the Plicit model, which is a pretty commonly accepted model in therapy. Uh, and part of that is just giving permission, right, for people to, to feel comfortable talking to us as therapists about their sexuality and sexual function and dysfunction, right? Exactly. And actually, a research project that myself and some of my students just completed um, in looking and, and interviewing healthcare practitioners, um, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, oftentimes we assume that the healthcare practitioner isn't comfortable. And it's not that they're not comfortable with the topic of sexuality. And what came out is that if a client brings it up to them, they are more than happy to discuss it. Mm-hmm. Um, but them bringing it up to the client is a whole nother story. There's that comfort in realizing that it's okay to, to bring it up. How are ways that you can recommend to us to bring, to give permission and to bring up sexuality, let people know that it is within our scope of practice. Just kind of open that door for conversation. What kind of ways can we do that? So one of the things, and actually we've been discussing with um, another researcher from the Netherlands, um, is uh, the concept of sexual awareness. So um, you don't necessarily need to be an expert to bring it up, but you need to be sexually aware. That could uh, be things in terms of your client's body language. Um, if they're discussing catheterization or you're helping with that, um, you know, that could be an opportunity to you know, discuss those things. One example I think that kind of stands out to me was we did at one point have a client who um, was getting bowel training. Um, and it was a male client and he was getting the bowel training from a male nurse. 
Um, and he became very, very upset because he got in a spontaneous erection, which is not at all related to being aroused. Right. Um, but this client didn't have that concept. Mm. And so that was a great opportunity to bring up the topic of sexuality um, and to say, you know, hey, that's spontaneous. There's a difference in the type of erection you can have. Um, and again, it wasn't something that maybe, you know, would have sparked a conversation, um, except for that upset him. And so it was a great opportunity to, to bring up the topic of sex and, um, and how his body was functioning since the injury. And from there, it can go into more specific mm -hmm. suggestions if, if you're comfortable in doing that. But I really think, you know, reading your, your know your client, know their body language. Um, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to have all the answers. And many times the clients don't even want or need all the answers mm -hmm. at one time, but just so that they know that it's okay if they, you know, feel uncomfortable. Um, I, one of the very common things when you're dealing with a young person with um, an injury is that they may start to display inappropriate sexual behaviors towards you because they're comfortable with you. You spend mm -hmm. a lot of time with them. Um, and realize that as sexy as you might think you are, it really has <laughs> nothing to do with you. Um, and it's really just their way of feeling out, you know, are they still attractive? Mm. Will people still respond to them? And so it's important not to get immediately offended or immediately feel great about yourself. <laughs> it really is just, again, an opportunity to say, hey, you know, I'm kind of getting the indication that maybe you're concerned about this. Yeah. You know, do you have some questions? So you don't need to be the expert, you just need to be aware. And, and I guess if, if we are put in those situations where maybe there's some sort of advances or them kind of testing boundaries, trying to, you know, figure that out, we don't need to shut that down. It can actually promote conversation. Whereas in other situations, we might have to set a clear boundary and say, no, that's not appropriate. Here we can actually use it to the client's advantage. Exactly. That's and really so just, cool. again, just kind of understanding where they're coming from. Now, obviously, if you open the door um, and you know they're, they're being what we would call sexually inappropriate um, and you open the door to allow them conversation, if that continues, you may need to shut it down. Right. But my argument would be don't shut that down immediately mm -hmm. because there's probably something more behind it than they're attracted to you. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I think that's really good too for um, younger practitioners who are coming in and we're, you know, it's hard to kind of test out boundaries with patients and we're told to build rapport, but that can sometimes create... Be very uncomfortable. Yeah, it can be uncomfortable. Yeah, it can kind of create problems. Yeah. Uh, so that's really, really helpful. Something else that's just kind of crossing my mind. So I know your background's in neuro rehab. Mostly spinal cord injury, but I, you know, I have worked with stroke and brain injury as well. Yeah. So I'm even thinking about this though beyond, um, just beyond neuro rehab. So obviously there's neurologic problems that will contribute to sexual function. Um, and then from that, we can also talk with them about sexuality. But I'm thinking back to when I was on field work and there was a woman who had a um, spinal fusion and you know I gave her the booklet that we give everybody and there's a, one sentence about sex and that you shouldn't have sex for six weeks, I believe was the recommendation. Um, don't quote me on that. <laughs> And I gave her the booklet, I, I went through it, and she found that sentence before I even got to that page on the booklet, and she was, you know, cracked a joke to her husband, and her husband, you know, turned bright red and, and told her, you know, can't talk about that, stop, stop, that's, that's embarrassing. And that was a really cool opportunity for me to say, hey, that, that's not embarrassing at all, this is something we should talk about. 
And again, I didn't go into great depth offering super specific suggestions, but just letting them know that if this is something that creates a problem, it's okay to talk to health practitioners about it. We we do want to support them with everything. So what do you see, I guess it's my long lead in into, what do you see um, for people who aren't working with clients with spinal cord injury? What can This is do? actually, it's great that you asked that because this is actually one of my pet peeves, is that <laughs> we do tend to, for people with chronic disabilities, so people with stroke, people with brain injury, people with spinal cord injury, sexuality tends to be addressed at least a little bit because this is a chronic ongoing condition. Um, however, we don't necessarily do that with our, you know, orthopedic population mm-hmm. or, um, you know, anybody over the age of 55, because God knows they couldn't possibly <laughs> be interested in sex, um, which I would argue very much against. <laughs> I'm not quite 55, but I'm getting closer. Um, and so my feeling with that is that everyone, as long as they're of legal age, and uh, legally, from a cognitive standpoint, um, and you know they don't have medical guardianship of some sort, I would argue that it needs to be addressed with mm-hmm. everyone. And actually, when you look at more of the orthopedic population, it's a lot easier. Um, you know, but many times, for example, someone has a total hip replacement. It's not addressed because, I, I don't know, practitioners think, well, it's only six to eight weeks, so mm-hmm. you know, they don't need to worry about that. Well, I mean, you don't know. Sexuality is a, a very important part of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there may be people that could go 12 weeks and not have a problem with it. And there may mm-hmm. be people that, you know, are looking to go home tonight, you know. Right. So, my, and I would argue that they're the easier population because mm-hmm. typically it's positioning. Yeah. It's very, very simple things. And providing permission is super easy, just as you kind of said. Here's the book. Yeah. Um a, a great story I had, um, and I was back when I was a young practitioner, um, <laughs> probably still in my 20s. Um, I had a, a client who I guess was probably mid 60s and had a, had a total hip replacement. Um, and I just basically at the end of the session, real easy permission because then she's leaving right. and I don't have to confront it with her at that <laughs> particular moment, yeah. um, is I just gave her a booklet on positioning and mm. restrictions. And I said, just want to give you this, review it tonight. If you have any questions, let me know tomorrow. Well, she came into the gym just smiling. She was like, thank you so much for that information. I was wondering how I was going to do that. So very, very easy. I, it, you know, she, she didn't ask any questions. With orthopedic populations, it's often very straightforward. Mm-hmm. So, they don't, so they're a great population because it, you don't need to feel embarrassed because it's over within two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not this lengthy That's a great thing point. that you have to go through. So. so for people who are a little bit nervous, you know, integrating this sexually aware treatment, this is a really kind of easy way to do it. Low yes. barrier to entry. We don't need to be experts on this. Exactly. And for most of the orthopedic populations, even the stroke population, you can go online and print off positions that are appropriate. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to create anything, just hand it out. We don't need an OT Kama Sutra. You don't need that, no. Well, and you bring up positioning, and um, so Kate was one of my professors, and in one of the classes, you actually gave us an assignment. It was just an activity analysis assignment, I believe, or mm-hmm. uh, there's another one for kinesiology, too, where it was, you know, here's the pre-position, here's the post-position, and, and you had us 
talk about every single muscle group that was moving and what movement was happening. And it was a sex position. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember I was doing homework in the library and I maybe shouldn't have done that homework in the library. (laughs) Um, And uh, some people commented, that's your homework? That's so inappropriate. And I actually had to explain to them, it's, it's really just what we do. We do activity analysis. We, we look at positioning um, throughout the lifespan. And this is just one of the relevant positioning issues for adults, right? So absolutely. And you know, it's funny because I think obviously I'm probably the most comfortable professor at Towson (laughs) and discussing the topic. And I do try and squeeze it in anywhere I can, because a lot of it really comes down to in the United States, we are raised that it is not appropriate to discuss sexuality or sex with anyone other than your intimate partners. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, One of the challenges I find with students, with new graduates, and with people who've been practicing for a long time is that if they don't have the... We need to make it not taboo. So if we don't have practice in discussing it openly, then how are you going to do that with your clients? And that kind of goes back to being that sexually aware, Mm -hmm. is realizing that when you're a healthcare practitioner and you have people that need that information, you don't, you can't afford to be timid. Yeah, absolutely. You can't afford to be afraid to talk about it. And I'm even thinking about that story you just told about uh, the woman with the total hip replacement. And if that was something that was really concerning her, but she didn't necessarily know to ask, you know, you wonder going home, what if she didn't know there were other positioning options? She could have caused serious damage to herself. Um, and I, I can see that with a lot of clients, they won't, they wouldn't ask, but they'd give it a try or they'd come up with their own solutions that were actually, you know, more unhealthy and causing more harm. And they would have had to, you know, come back into the hospital uh, yep. potentially with new issues. I know I'm kind of escalating that, but it's really, I think a, a real possibility if we're not giving this information, they can be in danger really. Well, we've actually seen that before dislocated oh, really? hips. So, oh. well, you just gotta be careful. Yeah, more of a possibility, <laughs> I guess, yeah. And actually, so this also brings up another issue that um, kind of goes back to how we started this conversation, talking about partners and how frequently people's partners are also important in people's recovery for you know a whole, a whole spectrum of reasons, right? Sometimes they will be helping them with you know toileting um, or bathing, and so those might not be tasks that the partners usually engage in together, right? Correct. Those are going to be things that might be kind of uncomfortable for them to begin with. Um, and so how can we support them as their sort of definition of intimacy changes, right? From sort of more like what we would think is like sexual activities to now they're helping them, you know, use the bathroom. You know, for those kind of caregiver, intimate partner overlap roles, what can we do for our clients in those situations? I think that's an excellent question, and I don't know that anybody truly has the answer. Um, for some people, it's it's a no-brainer, not a big deal, mm-hmm. and it's fine. For other people, it's a much more challenging aspect, um, and especially if it's long-term. So if we go back to some of our neurologic um, Uh, clients and again I found this with partners as well is it's really hard to you know again not to be crude but I'm going to do your bowel training I'm basically going to stick my finger in your hiney and pull the poop out and now let's you know get it on so it kind of takes away from um, and I think the best way to to support people and I had one uh, person that I spoke to in my research who really um, enlightened me in terms of things so um, she said sometimes it's about finding the right candle so mm-hmm. that after bowel training, the room doesn't smell bad. Yeah. And um, 
this is going to sound so cliche, but really making sure that there's an open line of communication between the partner and the client. Um, and sometimes if it is a long-term kind of issue, you know, you, you can recommend finding other supports to help with some of those more trying um, activities yeah. or figuring out, you know, planning and spacing out so that it's not like, oh, we're going to do this and then we're going to do this, right. like trying to, to space it out. But I don't know that there really is any one answer because people's relationships are different. Absolutely, yeah. You know, so sometimes you have people that are like, oh, it's no big deal. And, you know, other times it's, you know, a buzzkill. So, you know, maybe our our expertise in routines and, and helping people kind of manage their, their time and figure out what, what kind of timing they need for all these activities, that could be helpful. But you bring up a good point that even when we do know specific suggestions, it's not going to be a specific suggestion for everybody. Exactly. And really, you know, needing to consider everything we talked about before about our clients and their partners. So we're talking really a lot here today about sexual activity, and um, but I think we need to realize that intimacy is also a huge part of that. As I was doing interviews with um, the partners of people with uh, chronic injury, that was a theme that continually came up. Um, I had one uh, participant who actually said, you know, we used to be able to sit on the sofa and cuddle, but her partner is now, you know, a quadriplegic and in a wheelchair and just getting him onto the sofa is virtually impossible um, so that they can do that. Um, so having just that ability to cuddle, to mm -hmm. hold hands, you know, um, really impacts that emotional connectedness that, you know, is a huge part of, of sexual activity. So I think we were talking about how we could support, um, you know, our, our clients and their partners. And I think one way would be to, again, very individualized, but identify, um, you know, what they define as intimacy. And for different mm -hmm. people, that's going to be different things. Um, and then using our, our background in OT and activity analysis to determine if there are ways that they could you know, continue that. The same participant um, said, you know, well, we could cuddle by me sitting on his lap, but he's afraid. Now she sat on his lap all the time <laughs> prior to his injury, but now his fear is that she's going to break his legs. And um, although not really a realistic fear, um, it is his fear. And so you have to consider that. Mm -hmm. So then really kind of breaking down other ways that that could be possible. Something else I was just, I was just thinking about, um, because we are talking about uh, coupled sexual activity and just intimacy in relationships and sometimes we're going to be meeting clients that are not in relationships that are we're covering a whole lot of topics today mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <It's> okay <laughs> but we're you know going to meet people that are potentially just interested in dating or interested in finding a partner at some point um, no matter what age group we're working with and so that's something else we need to consider, right? So we can't just assume because somebody doesn't have a partner or doesn't talk about sexual activity or intimacy that it's not on their radar, right? Um, is there a different approach that we would take with someone who isn't necessarily um, currently engaging in sexual activity or is not um, part of an intimate relationship? I think so. I mean, I think that we still need to keep the lines open in terms of their particular injury and how that might impact things. What research has shown is that people who aren't currently in a relationship, we also need to realize that with chronic disability, many times people are in relationships that end mm -hmm. because of that chronic disability. Yeah. So then you have these same people in the same boat. So what has been seen in the research really is um, self-esteem, more self-esteem 
kind of that psychosocial, psychoemotional aspect um, that needs to be addressed. Um, because these are people who, you know, may not feel comfortable going out and looking for partners in, you know, in their current state. They may feel unattractive. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, the, there's been a lot of research with people with amputations. Um, and, you know, we don't think of that as, I mean, it is a significant disability, um, but their um, self-confidence and self-esteem mm-hmm. is really impacted by that. And so it's harder for them to put themselves out there. Um, so I think we need to consider that people with disabilities of all sorts really are a vulnerable population, and they feel that, um, yeah. and that we need to support them in uh, building their self-esteem um, and again, research has shown a lot of that has to do with peer support. So maybe that's something that we as OTs can provide. Do we know someone else who'd be willing to come in and talk to this person? That's great. And let them know that, you know, it's okay. You can still date. You can still do those things. Yeah. Um, I think the other aspect that we need to consider are where people are in their recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just about necessarily their self-esteem, um, but are they ready Mm-hmm. to talk about that. Um, it brings to mind a client that we had who was relatively young, I want to say 17 um, or so, had never really had a sexual partner mm-hmm. um, and did go through the sexuality education but wasn't really ready for it um, Was and maybe wouldn't have been ready for it had he not even been injured because that was not his focus. Right. Um, but now many years later at the age of 21... He sought me out, even though I had left my previous <laughs> employment, um, to ask questions and wow. to said, you know, I think I'm getting close to being ready. I've got a few girlfriends, not really sure how to go mm-hmm. about doing this. Um, and for him, the approach really was self-exploration because he had never had that experience before. He didn't know what his body was capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And so really facilitating finding sexual toys that he could use to masturbate because mm-hmm. he didn't have hand function. Um, you know, but again, kind of being there when they're ready. So yeah. if you have a client and you introduce it and it doesn't go anywhere, where can they go two years from now? Mm-hmm. Can they call you back? Can, do you have someone else that they can contact if they have a question? I think OT is really unique because we work on such intimate aspects of people's lives. So that many times the clients are more comfortable asking us than they are their physician, um, who they may be following up with for the next few years. Um, And so two years later, they may go to their physician, but they don't feel comfortable bringing it up to them. Um, because they've, they've made that connection with you. You worked mm-hmm. with me on toileting. You worked with me on getting my pants on. You've seen everything, the good, bad, and the ugly. See it all. And they feel really comfortable yeah. with you as the OT. So being able to provide them resources for when they are ready. Um, you know, if you, you, know, you don't have any questions now, if you get out of the hospital and you have questions, you can call me, or here's the number of somebody you can call. That's great. Um, I think is a really important aspect because we have to meet people where they are. So for people, you know, listeners and, and even myself that we're, you know, still trying to figure out how we can even just give permission to talk about it, um, how we can just support people without being experts, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of us feel like we can't do anything unless we're an expert on the, on the topic, and that's just not really true for, for much, is it? Um, and so we can even just have a battery of resources ready 
and um, give it to them, you know, a business card, right? For someone right. that we know can talk. And that's pretty simple. We can do that. that. That's pretty easy. And I think the other thing that's really important for all practitioners, um, but especially the newer people, I think the people that have been out there probably know this, is that we don't need to be experts. We just need to know who the experts are. Yeah. We need to be that person mm-hmm. the client's comfortable coming to. And if they have a question you can't answer, you know it's a medication-related question. Um, they started this new medication and now they have this problem. Right. We know that the pharmacist could probably answer that question. Um, if they have, you know, again, other questions about positioning that maybe we don't feel comfortable answering. Well, we've got PT, yeah. right? PT knows how to get people into positions. Right. <laughs> so I think that we need to, it, it's not just an OT issue. It's a team issue. And we need to really identify who on the team knows what. I think that... Um, it's, imp- it's important, and ultimately what I would like to see happen someday in the, in the future is that each member of the team can identify what their role in sexuality is. Not everybody's going to have the same role. Not everybody has the same set of skills. Um, and it's okay, just like everything else, that we break that up into what our areas are. Thank you so much. I feel like we have covered a really wide range of topics. Um, I feel like moving forward, I have a better idea of how I can support people regardless of diagnosis, just using the skills I already have as an OT. And so hopefully the listeners feel that way as well, uh, and we can just feel more equipped moving forward to just, again, be more holistic. And um, I have so many ideas moving forward, so I'm so excited to just have a little bit more knowledge in this area. And I know we did talk about a lot, so I'm going to post a lot of the resources that we talked about, some of the research you've done and that you referenced. I'll have that on otncork.com so listeners can can go back and and dive into this topic a little bit more. Um, But thank you so much, Kate, for uncorking this hot topic with me. Well, I want to thank you for bringing this topic to people's attention because this is my passion. Thanks for listening to this episode of OT Uncorked. For access to the resources mentioned in this episode and to add your voice to the conversation, visit the resource blog at otuncorked.com. You can leave a comment and you'll also find out more about our featured line. If you enjoyed this episode, share OT Uncorked with a friend and be sure to hit the subscribe button. Also, leaving a review on your favorite podcast player will help other OTs find OT Uncorked and join in on the fun. Thanks again for listening. Cheers!